तरेकं स्मरामस्तरेकं भजामः तरेकं जगत्साक्षिरूपं नमामः सलेकं निधानं निरालंबमीशं भवामोधिपोतं शरण्यं व्रजामः ओम शांति 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 On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. On Wednesday, the full moon of the month of Vaishakh in the Indian calendar is celebrated in India the thrice blessed day. This is the day on which that great son of India, the Buddha, was born. That's the first blessing. And the same day it is believed on which he attained his enlightenment, the day on which he became the Buddha, became awakened, the second blessing, and the day on which he left the body and attained to Mahaparinirvana, the third blessing. So today I'd like to spend some time talking about uh, Buddha's life and message, and of course from a Vedantic standpoint, and see what we have to learn from Lord Buddha. Of course, we celebrated last night here in the temple, and uh, an all beautiful altar has been arranged. And last night there was also the bathing of the baby Buddha. It was a touching ceremony uh, from the Japanese tradition in which the, the baby Buddha was pictured there, the small statue. It's, it's seen, it seems that when Buddha was born, it is said that he he took a few steps and stood, pointing with one hand to the sky and one hand to the earth. So that's actually considered to be the, the child Buddha, the, the newborn Buddha. And uh, we bathed him last night in a, a touching ritual. So we can th look a little bit at his life. Uh, his parents were, uh, his father, King Shuddhodana, was a they call him a king. It was probably he was like a, a big landlord or a king of a, a, a very small kingdom, not like a big king, but uh, a minor raja, we can say, head of the Shakya clan. And for 20 years he was married to his wife, Maya Devi, without any children. Then Maya Devi had a divine dream. And uh, in the dream she was taken to a celestial abode and had a bath in a holy lake and then a, a luminous white elephant circumambulated her body and entered within and after that she felt that she was uh, with child. And we usually dismiss these kind of things as some kind of nice mythology but in the life of Sri Ramakrishna 
the, who came just the other day, practically, we find the similar kinds of events. So his life is, a, is a, like a test, a touchstone for these ancient stories. And we start to feel that, well, yes, if it happened in 1836, it could have happened in uh, 600 years before uh, Christ, even, it could have happened. So uh, she was quite perturbed by this dream, and she approached uh, the astrologers to have the dream analyzed. And uh, they interpreted that, well, you will, be born, you will give birth to a son who has 32 major and 80 minor auspicious marks, and he will become either a great king, a universal monarch, a chakravartin, who rules over the, the entire land, or he could renounce home and become a world teacher, a monk, Buddha, a fully enlightened Buddha, bringing deathlessness to all. So, of course, we know which, which way it went. And it's interesting, to when we study these things, to note the parallels we see in our own tradition. When Swami Vivekananda used to... Uh, contemplates, he, before going to sleep, he says sometimes he would see before him two paths. The one path of uh, worldly success, and, and he felt he could attain the greatest riches and power and success in life, and the other was the path of the monk, of uh, complete renunciation and attaining illumination and becoming a, a great teacher. And these two ideals would present themselves before him when he went to bed, and always the path of the monk would finally win out, and that's what uh, occupied his mind. And so we know also in his life what, which path he took. So his Buddha's birth, of course, there are different uh, traditions, but uh, Maya Devi in 543 before the, the year 543 before the Common Era, 543 BC, uh, Maya Devi was on her way home to her Matern her parents' house to give birth there. But before she reached home, uh, they stopped in a beautiful flower garden in Lumbini, and there, under a sal tree, surrounded by flowers, uh, the future Buddha was born. This is in present-day Nepal, which is now one of the great pilgrimage places for Buddha, Buddhists, the birthplace of Buddha in Lumbini. And she died after seven days. The young boy was raised by her sister, Prajapati. He was given the name Siddhartha, which is a wonderful and very meaningful name. Siddha is perfection. Artha is, uh, is the, the goal. So it really means one who seeks after perfection, one who seeks to attain perfection. So a very appropriate name for the future Buddha. Siddhartha, also sometimes called Gautama. And uh, so there are some interesting anecdotes about his childhood, how the astrologers examined his body and found those 32 major and 80 minor auspicious marks. Things like uh, his hands would, were, so his arms were so long that his hands reached below the knees. And we find a similar description about Sri Ramakrishna, that his arms also were very long, that they reached past his knees. Then he was to have deep blue eyes and 40 teeth. And the minor, there are all kinds of minor marks, little things like that the tips of his fingernails would point upwards. So they found all these uh, signs. 
And there was one sage called Asita, a rishi called Asita, who uh, came to see the newborn babe and recognized him. He recognized that he is the future Buddha. And he was experiencing great joy, evident to all that how he bowed before him and worshipped him. And then he began to weep. And the father, King Shuddhodana, was very concerned. Well, why are you weeping? Is there something wrong? No, I see that this child will become a great world teacher, a Buddha. He will bring illumination to all. But I'm an old man, and I realize that I won't live long enough to hear his teaching, to receive his teaching. That is why I weep. So, like all parents, <laughs> almost, Siddhartha's parents did not want him to become a monk, and they knew the danger. Shuddhodana wanted an heir to rule his kingdom. So he took pains to shelter Siddhartha from the miseries of the world, thinking that if he grows up in, in luxury and pleasure and doesn't get uh, exposed to the harsh realities of this world, he won't get uh, inspired to become a monk and he'll become a king instead. So as the story goes, he was surrounded by pleasure gardens. There were three beautiful palaces, one for summer, one for winter, one for the rainy season, and all the delicious foods and servants and you name it. He was educated and trained in uh, physical uh, sports and archery and all those things that a king, a prince will learn, and, but no religious teaching. He was not to be given any religious guidance or teaching. But who can alter destiny, of course? One incident as a young boy, there was a, when he was a young boy, there was a, some kind of public ceremony, and his nurses left the child under a tree to go witness the festivities. When they came back, they found him immersed in deep meditation, sitting cross-legged under the tree. So we see signs in, in Siddhartha's life, as well as in Swami Vivekananda's life, Sri Ramakrishna's life, of that tendency towards meditation, even from a very young age. Siddhartha was married to his cousin, Yashodhara, and they had one son, Rahula. And Siddhartha was surrounded by pleasure. He had a beautiful young wife. There were dancing girls. There were servants. Everything was hunky-dory. <laughs> and yet he was not satisfied. There was a, a discontent within. A discontent. We see the same discontent in the wealthy. We, we, if you, you look at the lives of the rich and famous and the wealthy alive today, they're always seeking for some new pleasure, some new... Uh, something to fulfill them, but we find that inside they also feel discontent because riches and pleasures never bring real fulfillment. So Siddhartha felt this discontent and it became very strong. And it is said that uh, at this time the devas, the angels, the gods, they came to Siddhartha and sang a song because they're expecting, they, they know who he is, they're expecting him to become the Buddha, but uh, he has to do some work before that happens. So they come and sing, sang to him a hymn, which only he could hear. And it's a beautiful hymn. Uh, Edwin Arnold 
rendered it in the light of Asia, his translation, uh, expressing, as it were, all of humanity's cry of misery and confusion and longing for the awakener to come and guide them. So uh, this song, I'm going to read the, the version of it, just a couple of verses, from the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. Girish wrote uh, a play on the life of Buddha uh, based on the Edwin Arnold's Light of Asia in Bengali. And that again was translated into English. So it went from Sanskrit to English to Bengali back to English. And that's what I'm going to read. But it's poetical. <laughs> we moan for rest, alas, but rest can never find. We know not whence we come nor where we float away. Time and again we tread this round of smiles and tears. In vain we pine to know whither our pathway leads and why we play this empty play. Burst thou our slumber's bars, O thou that art awake. How long must we remain enmeshed in fruitless dreams? Are you indeed awake? Then do not longer sleep. Thick on you lies the gloom fraught with a million woes. Rise, dreamer, from your dream, and slumber not again. Shine forth, O shining one, and with thy shafts of light slay thou the blinding dark. Our only Savior, thou, we seek deliverance at thy feet. So this struck a deep chord in Siddhartha's heart, and he knew that he would have to give up and seek the truth, not for himself, but for all of humanity. It said that uh, the, uh, the, another turning point came when he was exposed to uh, the harsh realities of this world. He wanted to go out in the city, and uh, so his father permitted him to go out with his charioteer, but they had the roads cleaned and everything was nice. But as they're going out, uh, Siddhartha saw an old man, wrinkled, all wrinkled, his hair fallen out, his teeth fallen out, barely tottering along, leaning on a stick. And Siddhartha asked his, his uh, companion and charioteer, what's, what's wrong with him? What happened to him? He had never seen an old man. As the story goes, it may be for the sake of the story, it's a little bit poetically described. So he was exposed to this old man. He was shocked. He was stunned. Do we, does everybody become old? Oh yes, revered sir, everybody will become old if he does not die young. So it was a big blow to Siddhartha's mind. And again he went out. As the story goes, we know the story, most of us. And he saw someone covered with sores and unable to breathe properly, lying on the side of the road, coughing and spitting up phlegm. And what's wrong with him? Oh, revered sir, he is ill. He is very sick. Probably he's going to die. What? What is this illness? Siddhartha had never seen illness. Yes, everyone must suffer illness. It comes to everyone. It comes with the package. So this created another deep impression on Siddhartha's mind. Again, they went out into the town. And this time they saw a funeral party carrying a dead body chanting the name of the Lord, bringing it to the cremation ground. Siddhartha had never seen death. What is this? Channa, what, what is this? What's wrong with that man? Why isn't he moving? Oh, sir, he is dead. 
he will no longer live, he will no longer move. Will this happen to all? Oh yes, Master. All will have to die, all will have to meet this fate. So this is the lesson of the world, that Siddhartha saw clearly that life has these defects. It has these defects which we can't escape no matter how hard we try. It has these defects of disease, old age, and death. They come to all. So this created, of course, the, the additional impetus to Siddhartha. And then the fourth visit, the fourth trip they took out to the city, Siddhartha saw a young man, not dressed in ordinary clothes, dressed in kind of rags, but colored orange, colored, the flame, colored in the co color of flames. And his face was shining with joy and peace. And Siddhartha asked, well, who is that? Well, look at him, he's so happy, he's so peaceful. What, what is he all about? And the answer came, sir, he is a monk. He has given up his worldly ties and he is seeking the truth. So this was enough. At the time, his time had come now to give up the world. Swami Vivekananda describes the, his renunciation. And what was the difficulty? It was that he would have to sacrifice his beloved wife. Not that he could do with, couldn't do without her, but he knew how difficult it would be for her also to lose him like that. So Sister Nivedita describes Swami Vivekananda's uh, story, how he describes it. Then came the picture of the two long wedded and the great night of farewell. The God sang, Awake, thou that art awakened, arise and help the world. And the struggling prince returned again and again to the bedside of his sleeping wife. What was the problem that vexed him? Why, it was she whom he was about to sacrifice for the world. That was the struggle. He cared nothing for himself. Then the victory with its inevitable farewell and the kiss imprinted so gently on the foot of the princess that she never woke. Have you ever thought, said the Swami, of the hearts of heroes, how they were great, 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 and soft as butter? So Prince Siddhartha became a wandering monk, leaving early in the dawn with his charioteer, sending him back with his horse and crown and jewels. Then he found a hunter and he traded his princely robes, his silken garments for the hunter's uh, lowly dress and uh, went off to seek the truth. And Yashodhara, it is said, his wife led the same austere life, living in the palace but sleeping on the floor, eating wearing the simplest clothing, eating only once a day, and afterwards she too would become a nun when Siddhartha would return as Buddha. So Siddhartha roamed from place to place, eating by begging, his begging alms and practicing meditation. And we, there's a beautiful story which Swami Vivekananda loved. When he was at Rajgiri, he found a shepherd driving a flock of sheep and goats to be sacrificed 
the king was conducting a sacrifice and for the benefit of his kingdom he was going to sacrifice all these goats and Siddhartha was overwhelmed with compassion the how cruel these these animals are going to be sacrificed for the welfare of the kingdom and he, he couldn't digest it so he went with the shepherd and he went to the king and he said oh king you are going to sacrifice these goats for you, the welfare of your kingdom rather I offer you my head that will bring much greater benefit to the kingdom you take me of course the king couldn't think of doing that but he gave up animal sacrifice from that point Siddhartha found two teachers who were adepts in deep meditation the first were called Alara Kalama he studied with him and attained great progress in meditation and uh, his teacher found after a short time that Siddhartha had attained to his level and he said to him Siddhartha you have reached the goal you have you have attained the end you and I are now equals I invite you to sit with me on the teacher's seat and we together will lead our community but Siddhartha felt that no he hadn't yet attained realization he hadn't yet understood that truth which would end the misery that he had seen in the world for all he hadn't found it yet so he respectfully declined and went on his way he found another teacher Uddhaka Ramaputra and went even further in concentration reaching the deepest levels probably these two teachers were quite possibly Jain teachers it's not known for sure and uh, Ramaputra's uh, offer was even greater he said Siddhartha you have surpassed me you now become the teacher of our community I will be your student but Siddhartha still knew that he had not attained the goal so he went on without a teacher and began to practice the most terrible austerities he was joined by five wandering monks and the six of them together lived in the forest subsisting on the barest food fruits and nuts and roots that they could collect from the forest eating gradually reducing their food and doing this kind of intense austerity meditation and denying the body so it said that that uh, Siddhartha became so thin that you could see his backbone through his stomach from the front there was nothing left it was all skin and bones and he became very weak and at a certain point he went to have a bath in a river and he couldn't get out of the river he was so weak he was so weakened by his fasting it is then that he realized that uh, this torturing of the body also was not the path it was too much and afterwards he would teach this uh, parable of the vena the venas and drink it please come have a seat there's a couple of seats here and there's seats on the side there's a seat up front so the vena is an Indian stringed instrument like a sitar and if you if the strings are loose you won't get any good sound out of it you won't get a sound if you tighten the strings too tight they'll snap the strings have to be just tight enough and that's what uh, uh, Buddha would call the middle path neither too loose living in the palace a life of luxury nor too tight starving the body so much that uh, it becomes skin and bones So Siddhartha realized he needed to have some nourishment 
And at that time, they were near a village, a young uh, daughter of the chief cowherder of the village named Sujata. She came and offered him a bowl of rice pudding, bias, and he accepted it. And the other monks with whom he was uh, traveling and practicing his practices, seeing him accept it, and they said, oh, he has fallen to luxury, he has fallen away from the path, and they left him as a fallen monk. They, didn't, they no longer looked on him as their teacher, but as a fallen, a fallen one. So then Siddhartha was all alone. And the great night came, the night on which he was to awaken. There was a beautiful uh, tree, a peepal tree, just like this tree we have outside. This is, now it is called the Bodhi tree because uh, Buddha was awakened under a Bodhi tree. And uh, he took a resolve. He was, he was nourished by this food. He had his whole mind was purified by the years of meditation and the night, his, his whole system was ready for this awakening. And he took this intense, intent resolve. Ihasane shushyatu me shariram tvagasti mangsanilayam prayantu aprapya bodham bahu kalpadurlabham naiva santat kayamidam jalishyati. In Sanskrit, of course. <laughs> Let my body wither away, the skin, bones, and flesh dissolve. But before attaining awakening, even if it takes an age, I shall not move from this seat. So the night began. And at this point, the temptation of the Buddhist devil, Mara, came to tempt Siddhartha from his path, from his, from his resolve. It's a kind of personification of worldliness, of negativity, of tamas. We can say that almost a, a, a personification of all the old samskaras in our minds takes the, take, took an external form, as it were, and tried to tempt Siddhartha from his resolve. And first, uh, Mara sent all his, his divine damsels of daughters to tempt Siddhartha, but he couldn't be tempted. And then he came with his armies to frighten him, and he couldn't be frightened. And uh, rather, he deepened his meditation. And he entered by stages, four, the four stages of meditation, the four jhanas, deeper and deeper and deeper, until uh, the remaining veils fell from his mind. And as the morning star arose, Siddhartha ceased to be, and the Buddha was born, he who is awakened, the Tathagata attained nirvana. At this point, he recited these words in the, in the translation of Edwin Arnold. Many a house of life hath held me, seeking ever him who wrought these prisons of the senses, sorrow fraught. Sore was my ceaseless strife. But now, thou builder of this tabernacle, thou, I know thee. Never shalt thou build again these walls of pain, nor raise the roof tree of deceit, nor lay fresh rafters on the clay. Broken thy house is, and the ridge poles split. Delusion fashioned it. Safe pass I thence, deliverance to obtain. 
if you've seen uh, any pictures of Buddha touching the ground, there's, it's called the Bhumi Sparsha Mudra, the mudra, the position of the hands where he's touching the ground. This marks the very moment of his awakening. It is said that Mara came and said, you have no right to sit on that seat. I have the right to sit on that seat. And the whole, all my armies bear witness. And all his armies said, yes, we bear witness. You have no right to sit on that seat. Mara is to sit that, there. And uh, then Mara asked, who will bear witness for you? And Buddha said, Siddhartha said, the earth will bear witness. And he touched the earth. And that is the moment of his full awakening. The Buddha never would, who, who was Buddha? He would say, I am awake. I am the awakened one. Not that he was a god. Are you a god? Are you a man? Who are you? He wouldn't accept any of those appellations. No, I am awake. I am awake. So great was his joy, his utter peace, that he remained seated for seven days under the Bodhi tree. And then, in gratitude to the tree, he gazed at it for seven more days, just gazing at the tree. Then, after that, he paced back and forth in utter joy for seven days. It is said that wherever his feet fell, lotuses sprang from the spot. We can ask, what is the nature of, what did he realize? What is he awake to? It's difficult to put into words. We, we have to awaken ourselves, really, to understand it. But we can get a glimpse. Nirvana, is, it's beyond the speech and mind. Nirvana actually means extinction, or blown out, like a candle that's been blown out. Extinction of all suffering, extinction of all craving, extinction even of the sense of a separate self. If there's no self, then what remains? It is beyond is and is not. So that's why a Buddha would say, no, I am awake. Simply that, I am awake. At first, the Buddha wasn't even sure whether he could teach his realization. He had doubt that the world is so steeped in ignorance and darkness, what can I do? But then Brahma came to him and prostrated before at his feet and said, no, you have come for this purpose, you have to teach. So he went looking how to begin and he went to the deer park, which is in near present day Varanasi, Benares, and there he found his old companions, the five monks who had deserted him, thinking him a fallen monk. And he approached them and they saw him, but they didn't pay him any special respect. They said, oh, there, there he is again. Well, hi, how are you doing? <laughs> like that. Didn't, didn't stand up to receive him or anything, but he came to them and he told them, no, I, I, have, I am awake. And at first they doubted him, but then he reminded them, have you ever known me to tell a lie? And uh, gradually they understood that uh, a transformation had come. And he... To them, he began his teaching, his world mission. He began his teaching of turning the wheel of Dharma, Dharma as it's called, and uh, they accepted him as their teacher, and they all became arhats, fully illumined teachers. And they became the first monks of the Buddhist Sangha. Buddhists all over the world, they take refuge in Buddha, in, in his Dharma, and in the Sangha, the community of followers of the 
Buddha's teaching. Buddham sharanam gachami, dharmam sharanam gachami, sangham sharanam gachami. They recite these three, ref- taking refuge in these three, in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. Now these first monks, they took refuge only in the Buddha and the Dharma because there was no Sangha. So there was the, the two jewels, the Buddha and the Dharma, and after they uh, became Buddha's followers, it became a Sangha, and the, three, the triple jewels were born at that point. So let's talk a little about what did Buddha teach them, and what, was, what did he understand, and what did he teach them. It's beautiful teachings, which I think can be of benefit for us, though we may not be Buddhists, most of us. Yet, as Swami Vivekananda said, I am not a Buddhist, and yet I am. So, Buddha taught four noble truths. This is the, the essence of his teaching, is four noble truths. And the first truth is that life is characterized by what he called dukkha. This is usually translated as suffering, but it's not a very satisfactory translation. It means much more than that. To say that life is suffering, we, it, it doesn't really strike, a, it doesn't appeal to us, because we see that, yes, there's suffering, but there's also a lot of joy. We have happiness, too. Well, just to say, it's, and Buddha was not such a, ne- a person of neg- negation. He was established in deep joy and peace. So to, to say that, well, life is just misery and suffering, that was not his teaching. His t- dukkha, that life is characterized by dukkha means life is characterized by a profound and deep dissatisfaction that we can never get real real lasting and deep satisfaction and fulfillment out of life as long as we're living it on the level of the senses, on the level of the mind, with our families and our friends and our work and our, maybe we have a little prayer and meditation, but all of that is not going to bring us lasting fulfillment and peace. That's what uh, he means by the life is dukkha. It's, in, it's uh, characterized by impermanence, imperfection, insubstantiality. All that arises falls away. Birth is inevitably followed by death. So this is the first truth that he impressed upon his students. The second truth is there is a cause of this misery. There is a cause of it. And what is the cause? He, like, he calls it Tanha in Pali, or Trishna, craving. It's a craving, craving for satisfaction, which actually causes the misery. And he discovered an, uh, what he calls a chain of dependent origination, which ultimately originates in ignorance. It's, uh, I'll read out a definition of it. Any phenomenon exists only because of the existence of other phenomena in a complex web of cause and effect covering time past, present, and future. Because all things are thus conditioned and transient, they have no real independent identity. So nothing is, is, is free and independent. Everything is depending on everything else in a complex web of cause and effect. That's what he saw. And this, uh, this is uh, really the cause of misery. This that uh, we are identifying with that and with this, this uh, thirst is part of this web, interconnected web of, of cause and effect. 
The third uh, noble truth is that there, this, this state of affairs has an end. It can come to an end. And that, that end is, is nirvana. It is often defined negatively, just as the sages of the Upanishads, when they try to describe Brahman, they all, they, words fall short, but still they try and they, they say what it is not. It doesn't die. It, it has no shape. It has no form. It, it, it's uh, how to describe it. It's beyond words and speech. Nirvana is defined as the extinction of craving, as the unborn, the ungrown, the unconditioned, the annihilation of the illusion of a separate self, inexpressible. If we use positive terms, it gives the mind something to grab onto, something to hold onto. That's going to be a, mistaken, uh, a mistake because actually nirvana is beyond the mind, as is Brahman, beyond the mind. So if we say, well, it's this, then we say, ah, that's what it is, then we, we haven't got it because actually we have to, the, the mind has to be transcended. Buddha himself said, it is the complete cessation of that very thirst, giving it up, renouncing it, liberating oneself from it, detaching oneself from it. It is calming of all conditioned things, giving up of all defilements, extinction of thirst, detachment, cessation. As part of uh, this, this teaching, Buddha said that you don't, you, what you, who you think you are is yourself actually doesn't exist. And it's called the Anatmavada, the, the theory that there is no separate self, no independent self, the, the doctrine of no self. I think it's often misunderstood and for us as Vedantists, it's actually easy to understand it if we look at it from the point of view of Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta philosophy, where actually mm, Advaitins will also say, oh, the idea that you are separate from everyone else and everything else is, all, is a mistake. That self which you call me, it's only temporary. Who you really are is none other than Brahman. You are you are Brahman. Your true nature is infinite existence, knowledge, and bliss. So this doctrine of nirvana comes, comes close to that. It's uh, almost indistinguishable. Your nirvana is not something that is, nor something that is not. It is beyond is and is not. These, thing, these are all concepts. And Buddha is pointing us to Something, something which is neither a thing nor not a thing. We, we speak in paradoxes because we have to go beyond the mind to understand it. And then uh, Buddha proceeded to teach his disciples the fourth noble truth, which is the path. How to realize this, how to realize nirvana, how to overcome suffering and uh, attain real peace. And this path is called the Eightfold Path. It's a beautiful path, so practical. And we, we can just take up the, the eight parts of this path briefly. And here, really, uh, we can take a lot of inspiration for our own practice. 
whether we're following Buddha specifically or we're, we're following what, what, in whatever path we follow. That's the beauty of Vedanta, that we can take inspiration from all traditions. And this uh, specifically is uh, very helpful. So, Buddha gives us eight folds, as it were, of a path, but not that they are to be practiced successively. They are to be practiced simultaneously. And uh, they are... Uh, let's start right in. I'll give a brief... <laughs> I'll just list them. Right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And of course, each one of these is a deep subject. Samyak is the uh, Sanskrit word. Samyak drishti, right understanding. This is the first of the Eightfold Path. Proper understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Can we contemplate on the nature of life and really understand, yes, it has this defect. We are all going to die. Seeking for the permanent amidst the impermanent is going to lead only to frustration. This is the first noble truth, to gain a proper understanding of uh, what, Buddha, what Buddha taught, the Four Noble Truths, that there is this defect, but that there is, a, there is a cause of it, there is an end to it, and this is the path. And then once we have this proper understanding, we form an intention. Ah, I understand, I deeply understand that life lived as it is ordinarily is not going to bring me fulfillment. I resolve to realize the truth, make a right intention. This involves thoughts of selfless detachment, love, and nonviolence extended to all beings. So this is the intention that uh, is so important in our spiritual life. If we are going to make progress in spiritual life, we have to make a resolve. It's not going to happen by itself. We have to, we, we resolve to take up these practices and move forward. Samyak vak, right speech. Buddha calls on, calls on us to abstain from lying, to abstain from speaking in a way that causes division amongst people, to refrain from abusing others through our speech, and also from idle chatter, from idle chatter. So, our, so it sounds very much like our, our own tradition of, uh, of, that, of truthfulness in speech. That tru uh, uh, our speech must be truthful and must not cause any harm and must be pleasant. Not, it's not enough to speak something that's true, but it also must not hurt someone. Then action. Samyak karmanta, right action, right conduct. The follower of the Eightfold Path is to abstain from taking life, abstain from taking life, to refrain from stealing, and to refrain from, uh, to avoid sexual misconduct. These uh, three cause a lot of problems in life, if we can... Uh, these, all these things are lying and... and killing and stealing and sexual misconduct, they all cause a lot of problems for us, tie us very strongly to the world. So Buddha's whole point is untie the knots and wake up. Untie the knots and wake up. And this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. He calls on his followers to observe samyak ajivika, 
right livelihood. And he asked, has to, asked them not to engage in any occupations which either directly or indirectly result in harm to other living beings. It's very difficult to take up, especially in, it seems in this day and age when where the, the military has entered into almost every aspect of life. Uh, but he specifically at that time uh, required his followers to avoid uh, dealing in the trade of weapons, in the trade of human beings, in slavery and prostitution, in trading meat, and in trading intoxicants like liquor and drugs, and trade in poisons. Then, samyakvyayama, right effort. To we, we are to discard the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome to take great effort to give up that which we know to be harmful. We know that, we know what's right and what's wrong. We know that uh, lying is going to be harmful for us. We know that to be, when our mind is overcome with anger, that this is not a wholesome emotion, that this is going to cause us problems later on. How many times have we spoken in anger and regretted it later on? I think there isn't a, there isn't a person in this room who, who can't say that, yes, that happens, that's happened to me. But uh, right effort means following up on that resolve to overcome our anger and actually making progress, actually sh shunning those unwholesome thoughts, those unhelpful thoughts. And, and uh, then we have samyak smriti, right mindfulness. Buddha laid great emphasis on cultivating this mindfulness, cultivating awareness which gradually matures until only awareness remains and the object of awareness all fall away. So one starts with uh, awareness, mindfulness of the body, of sensations, of feelings, of the mind, of thoughts and conceptions. So this intense awareness develops into samyak samadhi, right concentration. And this, these are, there are four levels, four jhanas they're called, of this concentration, marked by increasing equanimity. In the first stage, uh, the mind may not be completely quiet yet, but the thoughts are greatly subdued, and uh, one feels an intense joy. In the second stage, the mind has become completely silent, and that stage is marked by a, a very intense, overwhelming joy. In the third stage, interestingly, that joy falls away and is replaced by a more peaceful happiness. And in the fourth stage, even that happiness falls away and is replaced by only equanimity, pure peace and equanimity. And it is from this fourth jhana, this fourth state, that uh, the awakening comes and one sees properly. So it's, it's practical, so practical and open to all. Buddha didn't, at the need of the time was very great because uh, there was a real tyranny of the priests in India at the time and uh, a, a terrible division of society into castes. So Buddha taught, threw open the gates of his teaching to all, irrespective of caste or gender and uh, 
we can say that uh, in some, almost, the Eightfold Path can be summed up by you hold the keys to your own illumination, self-effort, do good, meditate, and realize. Buddha avoided all philosophical debates and speculation, which is kind of funny to, to see that soon after he died, some do several dozen schools of different philosophies spr sprang up. Swami Swahananji always used to mention that, that uh, so many different schools of philosophy sprung up. But he himself, there was one monk who approached him with 10 met metaphysical questions. Questions like, is the universe eternal or is it not eternal? Is the universe infinite or is it not infinite? Are the soul and the body two or are they one? Does the Tathagata, the Buddha, exist after death or not? And Buddha gave a beautiful example. I think most of us know it. He said, consider someone who has been shot by an arrow. And a surgeon comes to remove the arrow. And the wounded person says, wait, stop. Before you remove the arrow, uh, who shot this arrow? And uh, what kind of wood is the shaft made of? I see there are some feathers on the end of the arrow. But what kind of bird do they come from? No. <laughs> You're not going to ask those things. Yes, please take the arrow out quickly. Once the arrow has been taken out, all these questions can be addressed. So likewise, I have given you, Buddha is saying, I have given you this eightfold path. You practice it. You wake up. Afterwards, you can address all these questions if they need to be addressed. You're dying with an arrow struck in you. You're sunk in darkness and ignorance. Wake up. I've given you the path. So you wake up. There's a beautiful uh, story of Buddha related by Swami Vivekananda, which I'd like to uh, read, uh, re related by Sister Nivedita. And this is the, this, this is the story of the cowherd. It is a wet night, and he comes to the cowherd's hut and gathers into the wall under the dripping eaves. The rain is pouring down and the wind rising. Within, the cowherd catches a glimpse of a face through the window and thinks, ha ha, yellow garb, stay there. It's good enough for you. And then he begins to sing. My cattle are housed and the fire burns bright. My wife is safe and my babes sleep sweet. Therefore ye may reign if ye will, O clouds, tonight. And the Buddha answers from without. My mind is controlled. My senses are all gathered in. My heart is firm. Therefore ye may reign if ye will, O clouds, tonight. Again the cowherd. The fields are reaped and the hay is all fast in the barn. The stream is full and the roads are firm. Therefore, ye may reign, if ye will, O clouds, tonight. And so it goes on till at last the cowherd rises in contrition and wonder and becomes a disciple. This was power of Buddha, his, his power of his personality. And as he went on teaching the Dharma, hundreds and gradually thousands of monks joined him and uh, many thousands of lay people became his followers, followers of the Eightfold Path of the Dharma. Not just his teaching, of course, but the power of his personality.
it's remarkable how he was able to convert even the terrible uh, dacoit Angulimala. Angulimala was a, a vicious robber who would uh, kill his victims and cut off one of their fingers and, and string it on a mala, on a necklace. And Anguli means finger and mala means necklace. So he had this necklace of severed human fingers around his neck. And he was terrorizing uh, one of the areas where Buddha was passing through and Buddha was warned by the locals, don't go that way, Angulimala uh, is there. You don't want to go there. But Buddha paid no heed, he went on his way. And uh, Angulimala, sure enough, spotted him and thought, ah, another victim. I'll get another finger for my mala. And so he started chasing Buddha. And this is the one place in the history where we find Buddha may have exercised some slight kind of uh, mystical power or magical power. Because Buddha was walking calmly and Angulimala was trying to catch him, running after him, but he couldn't catch him. He couldn't catch him. And he got frustrated and he shouted out, Stop, monk! And Buddha replied, I have stopped, O Angulimala. You too stop. <laughs> Further questioned, Buddha explained, No, I have stopped harming people. I don't, har I don't give any harm to anyone. But Angulimala, you have not stopped. And just by this, these words, Angulimala woke up, as it were, to his, his condition, and he stopped, and he took refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and became a monk. And an interesting incident happened right after that. King Pasenadi was hunting uh, Angulimala. He was determined to kill him once and for all, and was uh, sitting with Buddha that evening, uh, along with the other monks, and Buddha asked him, what would you do if you learned that Angulimala had become a bhikkhu, a monk, and was leading a holy life? And the king says, I suppose I would honor him and give him alms, but that is impossible. Behold, here is Angulimala before you. Angulimala was sitting there, one of the monks. So this is the, the power of Buddha's personality and his demonstration that hatred of his teaching, that hatred can never be conquered by hatred, but only by love, only by kindness. So I think we'll close with uh, a little quote from Swami Vivekananda about Buddha. Swamiji was a great fan of Buddha, though, as he would say, not of his doctrine necessarily so much, but he was a great lover of Buddha. And in Swami Vivekananda himself, we see another Buddha, another awakened one who was an awakener, one who uh, said, as Buddha had a message for the East, I have a message for the West. So Swami Vivekananda said, see the sanity of the man, no gods, no angels, no demons, nobody, nothing of the kind. Stern, sane, every brain cell perfect and complete, even at the moment of death, no delusion. I do not agree with many of his doctrines. You may not, but in my opinion, oh, if I had only one drop of that strength, the sanest philosopher the world ever saw, its best and its sanest teacher, and never that man bent before even the power of the tyrannical Brahmins. Never that man bent. 
direct and everywhere the same, weeping with the miserable, helping the miserable, singing with the singing, strong with the strong, and everywhere the same sane and able man. <coughs> Buddha was not a man, but a realization. Enter all ye into it, here receive the key.